Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of Simplifying the Sod. This week we begin the Perasha of Noach. Uh, we begin a new month. I was looking, we had discussed Noach in the past. We discussed him with the rabbis. We praise Noach as a Sadiq. We discussed where the rabbis are, uh, are very critical of Noach. We discussed Noach being... A, uh, we, we discussed Noach, his zechut in, in Hashem giving him and forcing him to do chesed as chesed can save a person's life. We discussed Moshe Rabbeinu as a gilgu or as a tikkun of Noach carrying the soul. I want to look at Noach from a little different perspective today. Shlomo HaMelech writes, Mavet vechayim beyad lashon. Death and life are in the hand of the tongue. The Gemara in Arachin comments, Does the tongue have a hand? And the Gemara answers, This comes to teach us that just as a hand can kill, so can the tongue kill. We often try to find a theme that binds the various parts of Torah, of the, of the portion of the Torah that we read that week together. And we run through this parasha, and we basically have the flood, and then we have the, uh, the aspect of the uh, Tower of Babel. So I, I was looking for a theme that, that really runs through, and I would like to suggest that a possible theme for Perashat, for this portion of Noah, could be this verb, this, this verse that we find in, in Mishlei, in Proverbs of Shlomo HaMelech. It is the power of speech, for good or for bad. Sometimes one must speak, but sometimes the best speech is silence. Very often we find people in our world speak simply to be heard, although nothing of substance comes through. We often see people speak and they basically put their foot in their mouth and get themselves into trouble. Any lawyer who's uh, preparing his client for a deposition will tell you that that's the biggest problem, trying to get people not to talk. Rabbi Abitan would tell us, that Hashem created us with two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, but only one mouth. And he would tell us that it's the mouth that gets us in the most trouble. The mouth gets us in trouble because of what we put into it. And the mouth gets us in trouble because what comes out of it. You know, the, the, the rabbis tell us we drink wine and secrets come out. There's so many things relating to what we put in and what comes out. The rabbi would tell us a story of an American professor of philosophy. This guy had to go deliver a paper in China. And this professor would be making a speech in front of a large group of Chinese philosophy professors. And obviously this guy, he didn't speak Mandarin. And so what did they do? They brought for him an interpreter. And this interpreter also happened to be one of the leading professors of philosophy in China. They figured, you know, the professor is... Uh, the translator already knows philosophy. He'll be the best guy to help. So the American asked his Chinese counterpart, how often do I need to pause for you to be able to translate? And the Chinese professor says to him, listen, don't worry. When I nod, you stop, and then I will tell them what you said. So the American said, fine. So the American started to speak. He speaks for a minute or so. He looks across as the, at the Chinese professor. And the guy says, no, continue, continue. He's waving his hand to continue. And so the American continues to speak. And after about 15 minutes, he sees the Chinese man nod his head. So he pauses. The Chinese professor turns to the audience. He says a few words. 
And then he motions for the American to continue. So the American professor continues for another 15 minutes. And again, the Chinese professor motions for him to pause. And again, he seems to sum up those last 15 minutes in five or six words. This continues a couple of more times. The hour-long speech is finished, and the Chinese professor, all told, didn't say more than 20 words to the audience translating the speech. And at the end of the speech, the American is, is amazed. He turns to the, to the translator. He says, I don't understand. How is it possible to express all that I said in so few words? So the interpreter says, with all due respect, professor, I want to be completely honest with you. I told the audience after you spoke for 15 minutes that this guy hasn't said anything new. And 15 minutes later, I told them that I really didn't think that you would be saying anything new today. And that happened again. And finally, when the lecture was over, I told all of them that I was absolutely right because nothing new came out of his mouth today. We begin the portion of this week's parasha. We begin the, the parasha with the words, Ele toldot Noach. Noach ish sadiq. These are the generations of Noach. We're looking for Noach's children. Noach ish sadiq. So rabbis tell us that, that a person's children could be his good deeds. Tamim hayab edorotav. He was pure. He was, he was, uh, he was pure in his generation. Eta Elohim hitalech Noach. Noach walked with God. Vayoled Noach. Noach had Shiloshabanim, three children, three children, et Shem, et Ham, et Yafet. He has his three children. The Torah labels Noach as Sadiq. And we have to ask what was the source of Noach's righteousness? Some rabbis suggest the hint is in the names of the three children of Noach, et Shem. Et Ham, Et Yafet. The first three letters, Shin, Het, Yud. If we mix them a little, they spell the word Siach. Siach is conversation. The strength and righteousness of Noah was in his ability to control his speech. The rabbis bring up an interesting fact. The gematria of the word Siach, the numerical value, the Shin is 300, the Yud is 10, and the Chet is 8, 318. Where do we have this number 318? You're going to recall, and we'll read about, that when Noah, when, when Abraham goes next week to save his nephew Lot, he takes with him to fight. There was the war between the four kings and the five kings, and, and the, these four kings came and, over, and, and, and conquered the five kings among them, was, uh, was the city of Sidon where Lot was taken prisoner. So Abraham comes with his men, and the, the Torah tells us, with 318 soldiers, and they are the ones who conquer these four kings. They release Lot, they release all the people of Sidon, they win the war. But it's interesting. The rabbis tell us that this 318 is also the gematria, for the name of the servant of Abraham, whose name is Eliezer. And some rabbis suggest that it was simply Abraham and Eliezer, who had the power of 318 men who fought together. So this 318, relating to this word siach, relates also to the story of Abraham and Eliezer.
And both Abraham and his servant seem to have this ability to control their speech, as we're going to see in the upcoming chapters of, uh, of Bereshit. But just a quick, uh, a quick view ahead. In, uh, in chapter Haftalet, the 24th chapter of Bereshit, the Torah relates to us the story of the journey of Eliezer, the servant of Abraham. He goes up to, uh, to Syria to find a bride for Abraham's son Yitzhak. And we read there how Abraham summons Eliezer, he sends him on a mission, he instructs him to choose a bride from the family of Abraham's brother Nahor, from the family of Abraham's brother. So Eliezer arrives in Syria. He prays to Hashem, asking for his guidance to find a worthy bride for Yitzhak. He then devises a sign. The maiden who, when asked for a drink of water, will offer to draw water for his camels as well, is the one destined to marry Yitzhak. Rebecca appears. She fulfills the requirements of the sign. When Eliezer asks after her family, he learns that she is the granddaughter of Nahor. And Eliezer thanks Hashem for leading him on the path to the home of his master's brother. So now Eliezer he comes to the home of Rebekah's family. And at this point, we read all the details of the events of the day for a second time. This time, they're in Eliezer's words. He relates them to Rebekah's family. The point of the story, once again, is the show that Hashem made this all happen. The matter was ordained by Hashem, agrees Betuel, agrees Laban. Rebecca's father and brother, they both agree. And they say, we can say nothing, good or evil. When we get to that, we see it's interesting how it relates to the, to the, uh, to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So this long chapter, remember, it's 67 Pesukim, evokes much conversation among the sages. Not only is the Torah uncharacteristically detailed in its description, but it twice recounts the entire story and it's almost verbatim. This in a Torah that's so concise that many complex laws are derived from an extra word or letter. And we're going to see in this parasha how the rabbis bring up a few extra letters, how, how amazing it is. So the conclusion that the Torah, the, the, the rabbis bring that the conclusion is that the Torah prefers the conversation of our forefathers' servants to the intricacies of the Torah law addressed to and studied by their descendants. Eliezer's story is a classic example of the toil of speech, of the manner in which we apply our creative and communicative skills to create a world in partnership with Hashem. A series of events takes place at the city well of a Mesopotamian town, in the Syrian town, and results in the marriage of a certain woman to a certain man. These are wholly natural events, but they're strung together by what is commonly described as coincidence. But Eliezer transforms these events into speech, into a cohesive and meaningful narrative. Eliezer tells how he prayed to Hashem for success, expressing the belief that what is about to unfold is the doing of Hashem rather than the blind workings of fate. He asks for a sign and he presides over its fulfillment. He then tells the story to Betuel and Laban, communicating to them what he experienced and convincing them the matter has been ordained by Hashem. In Eliezer's experience and telling a piece of natural world, 
of this natural world is defined as the handiwork of Hashem. It's an expression of the Creator's involvement with His creation. It's unbelievable to think about, but speech, done properly, allows us to partner with Hashem. We're going to see this theme of speech continues throughout the Perashah. Later on, we see that Hashem tells Noah, Of the pure animals, take with you seven by seven. He continues, And of the animals which are not pure. So the rabbis comment, we know that every letter in the Torah is precious. There are no extra letters in the Torah. So we see here that instead of the word Tameh, Hashem, the Torah, replaces it with multiple words, Asher lo Tehorah. And Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi says in the Gemara Pesachim, a person should never express a crude matter as the formulation of a verse was distorted by the addition of eight letters rather than have it express a crude matter. He said, instead of saying the word Tameh, was spending a few extra letters in order to say Asher Lo Tahor. Again, the theme is the power of words. I saw Rav Gutman who quotes Harav Moshe Wolfson, who we often quote, and he says, Hashem wished to save the one righteous person of the generation, Noah. So he commanded him to build an ark. And he asks the question, what was the secret of this ark? What was the power of the ark? And he says, the word for ark in Hebrew is teva. A teva is also a word. The deeper message of the destruction of the mabul and the salvation of the teva, he says, is the incredible power of speech. So again, we see this theme of speech. The way to save ourselves from a world of destruction is through refining our speech. We have to understand the incredible power of speech. The rabbis divide creation into four levels. The entirety of creation is divided into four realms, four kingdoms. The lowest is domem, the silent or inanimate creations. We say like the rocks. Someach is growing things. That's like the plants. Chai, living things, is the animal world. And finally, man. But the word which is used to describe the human being is the Hebrew word medaber. Medaber. What is the essence of a human being? It's the power of speech and how we use the power defines us. Shlomo HaMelech tells us that a bird carries our words. There's a story many of us have heard, but I think it's important to tell the story again, especially if you haven't heard it. But even if you did, to remind ourselves of the story. Somewhere in Eastern Europe, there lived a nice man, but he had a nasty problem. He talked too much about other people. He couldn't help himself whenever he heard a story about somebody he knew and sometimes about somebody he didn't know. He just had to tell it to the next guy, tell it to his friends, tell it to his business associates. And since he was in business, he heard quite a lot of rumors and stories. He loved the attention he got. He was delighted when they laughed because of the way he told his anecdotes, which he sometimes embellished with little details he invented to make them funnier and juicier. 
Other than that, this guy was really a pleasant, good-hearted man. He kind of knew it was wrong, but it was too tempting. In any case, most of what he told had really happened, didn't it? Well, most of the way it happened. Many of his stories were just innocent, entertaining, weren't they? One day, he found out something really weird, a true, about another businessman in town. Of course, he felt compelled to share what he knew with his colleagues. And they told it to their friends, and they told it to the people they know, who told it to their wives, who spoke with their friends and their neighbors, and it went around town. Till the unhappy businessman, who was the main character of the story, heard it. He ran to the rabbi of the town, he cried, he wailed, he complained that he was ruined. No one would deal with him after this. His good name, his reputation were gone with the wind. Now the rabbi knew his customers, so to speak. And he decided to summon the man who loved to tell stories. If he was not the one who started them, he might at least know who did. When the man with the nasty problem heard from the rabbi how devastated his colleague was, he truly felt sorry. He honestly had not considered it's such a big deal to tell the story, but it was true. The rabbi could check it out if he wanted. The rabbi sighed, true, not true, that really makes no difference. You just cannot tell stories about people. It's all Lashon Hara, slandered. He says, this is like murder. You kill a person's reputation. He said a lot more, and the man who started the rumor now really felt bad. He was so sorry, Rabbi, what could I do to make it undone? I'll do anything you say. The rabbi looked at him and said, do you have any feather pillows in your house? Rabbi, I'm not poor. I have a whole bunch of them. But what do you want me to do, sell them? No, just bring me one. The man was mystified. He returned a bit later to the rabbi, studied. He had this nice fluffy pillow with him under his arm. The rabbi opened the pillow, handed him a knife and said, the rabbi opened the window, he handed the guy a knife and he said, cut it open. But rabbi, here in your study, it's going to make a mess. And the rabbi said, no, do as I say. And the man cut the pillow. A cloud of feathers came out. They landed on the chairs and on the bookcase, on the clock, on the cat. They were all over. They were in the teacups and the table. And the man saw a lot of them flying out the window in a big swirling trail. The rabbi waited 10 minutes. Then he told the man, Now go and gather all the feathers and stuff them back into your pillow. All of them, mind you, not one can be missing. The man stared at the rabbi in disbelief. It's impossible, rabbi. The ones here in the room, I might get most of them, but the ones that flew out of the window are gone. Rabbi, I I can't do that. You know I can't do that. Yes, explained the rabbi, and he nodded gravely. And that's how it is once a rumor, a gossipy story, a secret leaves your mouth. You don't know where it ends up. It flies on the wings of the wind, and you could never get it back. He ordered the man to apologize to the person about whom he spread the rumor. He, he, he ordered him to apologize to the people he told the story to, because they were accomplices in the Lashon Hara. He told them to study the, law, the laws of Lashon Hara. And this is what the man did, and not only did he study about Lashon Hara, he talked about the importance of guarding your tongue, and he became a whole different person. But when you think of that story in those days, the story may have flown around the small town, the small village. Today, someone could say something, and minutes later, it's touched everywhere in the world. You couldn't even imagine that a hundred years ago. But today, you can say something, you could start some rumor, and literally, in minutes, it's reached the four corners of the earth.
we have to know how powerful our words are. Also, a friendly word can make a world of a difference and a tremendous difference in this world. When my dad passed away, it was interesting that I, that I saw two people who, who had found out and cried with sorrowful mourning. Who were they? There was the guy on the corner who stands in the coffee cart and sells coffee. He's an Arabic man and my dad would stop every morning and say a few words to him in Arabic and wish him and bless him with a happy day. And the other guy was one of the parking lot attendants, a Spanish guy. My dad always stopped to say hello and exchange words with everyone. 10 seconds, he would say, can make a huge difference in a person's day. This week, we lost Rabbi David Eliach. Rabbi Eliach was the longtime leader of Vlapish Yeshiva. He died Thursday. He was 99 years old. I remember I sat with him a few years ago after his wife, Professor Yafa Eliach, passed away. He was the principal of, uh, of Flatbush from 67 to 97. He was principal when I was there. And uh, he introduced a lot of things and, and really ran what, what people say was the, the top Jewish uh, day school in the, in the world. There's a story that's told in his wife's book, Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust, of a renowned rabbi in Poland who took a daily stroll around his neighborhood. This rabbi was mindful of the teachings of the, of the sages to greet every person with a pleasant expression. The rabbi met each person he passed on these walks with a smile and a sincere good morning. In this way, he made many friendly acquaintances, including with a neighbor of German descent, this neighbor would every morning be out in his garden and as the rabbi walked by, he would turn to him and say, good morning, Herr Mueller. And the, the German would turn to the rabbi and say, good morning, Herr Rabbiner. When World War II began, the rabbi's daily walks came to a stop. Many of the local goyim, especially those of German descent, donned uniforms, some SS uniforms, and went off to war. And the rabbi soon found himself in one of the infamous lines of the concentration camps, where a flick of the hand towards the right meant life, and where a flick to the left signaled imminent death. The weak, frail rabbi was sure to be sent to the left, but at the front of the line, a flash of recognition crossed his face. Good morning, Herr Mueller, the rabbi said to the officer in charge. Good morning, Herr Rabbiner. Herr Mueller couldn't help but respond. And then to the right. This rabbi ultimately survived the war and all because he had taken the time to say good morning. This story and others like it left a deep impression on me and I do my best as my father did to make it real daily. Finally, let's jump to the end of the, of the portion. We're going to get into some of the words of Rabbeinu Ha'ari and try to understand this a little deeper. There's a ma'amar in the Hasidic work Torah Or, which discusses the famous episode involving the Tower of Babel, also known, we know it as Dor HaFlaga, the generation of uh, dispersion. 
As the Torah relates a few generations after the Mabul, after the flood, the residents of the newly inhabited world gather together, they decide to build a tower. The Pasuk tells us that the purpose of the tower was to prevent dispersion of the people as they desired to remain united. The building of the tower did not find favor in Hashem's eyes. He decided to cause a confusion of language among the builders. This consequently halted the tower's construction. It ended the scheme. And the verse states that Hashem was worried that if the people succeeded in building this tower, they would usurp power from Him and take control of the world. The Gemara tells us that the sin of the Dora HaFlaga was so severe and caused them to forfeit their portion in the world to come. They are viewed as even worse than the generation of the Mabul of the flood. But the entire affair is puzzling. What was wrong with the Dora HaFlaga's desire to be united? And the verse says, and Hashem said, they are one nation, one language. They will now be able to do whatever they desire. Let us descend and confuse their language. The statement is most puzzling. How can people have the power to do something against Hashem's will? Who could decide what will occur in the world if Hashem did not decree it? Furthermore, what was the purpose in making a tower that would reach the heavens? And how would this tower empower the people to do whatever they want? So we turn to Rabbeinu Ha'ari for the answer. In Likutei Torah by Rav Chaim Vital, it states that the generation of the Tower of Babel desired to draw down blessings of prosperity and tranquility from Hashem through using His divine names, even though they were spiritually not deserving of the blessing. We have to remember that the Dor HaFlaka were people who were extremely advanced in the knowledge of Hashem and what we call the works of Kabbalah. They understood the words, they understood the letters, they were experts at the language. This is the, the, what, what Abraham Avinu writes about in uh, Sefer Yetzirah. And they desired to use this knowledge to guarantee their continued prosperity. They wanted to continue to enjoy life, but they didn't want to actually work and serve Hashem. We have to remember that serving Hashem is the prerequisite for Hashem, uh, that which He established to benefit in this world. So it says, The door haflaga had a knowledge in a way of how to bypass the fulfillment of this condition and they still they still wanted to receive the material blessing they desired so they're going to go around it use the tools which basically if we if we try to understand you can you know i like to use the star wars term just because sometimes it's easier to understand you can go with the force which means you have to work at it you have to do or the dark side which is a back door Although Hashem made the reception of blessings from the upper world of Atzilut contingent on the fulfillment of Torah mitzvot, the Dor HaFlaga knew that in order to receive blessings from this world, they would need to serve Hashem. They would have to nullify their desires for the sake of Hashem. The foundation of all Torah mitzvot and the three pillars of Torah, Avodah, of, of Torah, of serving Hashem and Gemilut Chasadim and doing kind deeds on which the world stands, what is the main focus? It's Bitul the nullification of oneself for Hashem's sake when one does this when one is bitul then what happens is this bitul is contained in the sefirah tiferet remember that we have chokhmah we have chesed and gvura and they're balanced in tiferet and this this gives stability to the sefirot 
and initiate, initiates an influx of blessing towards the world. So what happens? The door Haflagat, they have no desire for any self-limitations. They don't want to serve Hashem at all. So they use their knowledge of the structure of Olam HaAtzilut. They decide to find a different method that's going to bring them blessings. And what do they do? They, they unite. They live in harmony. They live in peace. And what does that do? It emulates the Sefirah of It's the unity which balances the aspects of Chesed. Chesed is giving, giving kindness. Gvuda is self-control. So they're the two sides, the left and the right. They're balanced in the Sefirah. So what do they do? By creating unity and balance, they emulate this Sefirah of By imitating the harmony of the Sefirah of in a way, they too draw down from the name of Havaya, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. We explained it in last week's class on Bereshit. Through their peaceful and unified life, and they wouldn't have to resort to serving Hashem. This is the meaning of the statement that's quoted earlier. They knew how to use the names of Hashem. They knew the secret behind the function of Tiferet. They wanted to use that secret to receive their blessings. They therefore built a tower that would serve as their great center the main area for their harmonious relationship. But what happens? Going around the dark side, going around the shortcut, not doing Hashem's will is against Hashem's will. The Dor HaFlaga wanted harmony amongst themselves. They wanted to use it to remove Hashem's power from the environment. Therefore, Hashem descends. He ruins their scheme. He destroys the tower. He confuses their tongue. And then he causes discord. Because if not then what would have happened? Then the Kilipot would have attached themselves to this aspect of, the, of, of Atzilut. And Atzilut generally is above the power of any of the Kilipot. To try to understand this in a simple way, there's a parable that I saw a rabbi bring. A wealthy businessman with many children. He's so happy to see all of his children work together in the business. They're peaceful, they're tranquil. It's a wonderful thing. And... All of a sudden, he finds out one day why are they all working together? Because they simply want to get rid of the father, throw him out of the business, and take over the company for themselves. Upon such a discovery, what's he going to do? He's going to separate the children. He's going to prevent the scheme from taking place. The purpose of the Dor HaFlada, the purpose of their unity, was singular. To remove Hashem's influence from their midst and allow them to do as they pleased in this world. There's another way of understanding the sin of this generation. In Bereshit Rabbah, and, and I think it's just another way of trying to understand, you know, it's hard for us to understand what is this idea of the dark side, of idolatry. In, in Bereshit Rabbah, it quotes a verse about the Dor HaFlaga. It says that the people of the Dor HaFlaga were of Devarim Achadim. The Midrash explains that this means they spoke words, Devarim, which were sharp, chad. Chad is from the word achadim, about a one-of-a-kind person, echad, named Abraham, who was alive at the time. Abraham, we know, was unique. We called him the Ivri. He was on the other side of the river, alone. They spoke out against Abraham. They spoke out against also the other echad. Who's the main echad? Hashem. About Abraham, they said, he's barren. He can't have children. About Hashem, they said, it's not fair that he chose to dwell in the heavens and we're left on the earth below. 
they claimed that Hashem had the high ground and the advantage to wage war against them. And that's how they wiped them out in the flood. Therefore, what do they do? They decide to build a city with a tower. They're going to place an idol at the top of the tower with a sword to wage war against Hashem. How do we understand this? They decided that instead, remember at that time Hashem is connected to all the people. There's, there's the flood, there's Noah, there's Shem Ham Yafet, there's a direct connection, Hashem supervision over them. They decide that instead of being governed directly by Hashem, they're going to be governed through the stars, through the mazalot, through the constellation, through the, through the angels. This helps us to understand that they become the 70 nations, each governed by a sar, by an angel. They felt that through the power of speech, which they possessed, they had the knowledge of the letters, the mystical control, and with that they could form a sort of symbiotic relationship with those angels. They would offer worship to the angels, and in, and in, in exchange, they would receive favor. The story I like to tell is the story of the restaurant. I walk into a restaurant and I see there's a, a waiter, nice guy. And what do I do? The owner is sitting there behind the bar, doesn't get involved. So I walk in and I give the waiter $100 and I tell him, make sure you take care of us. Well, the waiter's gonna take care of us. He brings us appetizers on the house. He brings us our food. He's back and forth making sure everything's okay. He brings us desserts on the house. Finally, he brings us a bill. There's no bill for the appetizers. There's no bill for the desserts. There's no bill for the drinks. The only thing are the meals. And what do we do? We pay for the meal and we give another $100 tip. What happened? We went around the, the owner of the restaurant. We dealt directly with the waiter. We served the waiter, so to say, by tipping him. And the waiter cut through the system and we didn't have to pay what we were going to pay. Something like that. So what happens? That's really what the idea of Avodah Zarah is. The angels, almost like waiters, they're the waiters. They're the servants of Hashem. They work for Hashem. They work for the restaurant. Hashem is the owner of the restaurant. But Hashem designed the system that you can sort of tip the waiter and he'll give you things and you're going around the system in order to have free choice in this world in this manner those people could cheat and defeat in some way the Baal Habayit the owner which is Hashem and their sin is compared to the sin of Adam we have to remember that the Nahash told Adam and Chabad that on the day they're going to eat from the from the, uh, the tree of knowledge they're going to be like God if Adam ate from the Etz Hadad and demonstrated that he he bought the sales pitch of the Nachash, eating from the Etz Hadad as displayed, then it shows Adam wanted to be a god like Hashem. For a person to think that he could be a god is idolatrous. This was precisely the thinking of this Dor Haflaga. They thought there could be multiple gods, even if they were lesser gods. They could exert power and influence, control, and they can control those gods. They can control those angels. Their rebellion was similar to Adam HaRishon. So we see the string which binds the portion is the power of the word. It's the power of the word, the control of the language, 
the knowledge of the language. I'm just going to close with one more story that the rabbi always told us. It's a story that's found in the Midrash on Tehillim. It's based on a pasuk that David HaMelech writes, I will watch my ways that I don't sin with my tongue. The rabbi used to stress this story and remind us again and again how life and death are in the hands of the tongue. And this story tells of a Persian king who was sick. His doctors told him, there's no healing for you unless the milk of a lioness is given to you. So one person spoke up and said, you know what, I'll bring the, the milk of the lioness, but please give me in advance 10 goats and I can accomplish what I need to accomplish. The king told his servants to give them to this man and he went out to the lion's den. There was one lioness there, she was nursing her cubs. And the first day, what did he do? He stood at a distance, he sent her one goat, she ate it. The second day, he got a little closer to her and sent her another goat. And he did this day after day, coming closer and closer. Finally, he was able to pet her. In the end, he could come so close that he could actually nurse her. And he took her milk and he returned on the way. Along his way, he saw in a dream that his limbs were fighting with each other. The feet said, I'm the most important. If we didn't walk, there would have been no way to get the milk. The hand said, what do you mean I'm the most important? I was the one who got the milk from the lioness. If it wasn't me, forget it. The heart said, if I didn't have a plan, where would you all have been? The tongue spoke up and said, and if I didn't say a word, it says, what would there have been to do? All the limbs answered the tongue. How can you pair yourself to us? You're in a dark place. You don't have the plan. The rest of the limbs had. The tongue said, today I'm going to show you who's the ruler. The man heard these things. He went to the king and he said to the king, my lord king, here, the milk of kelb for you. The king became furious. What's a kelba? A female dog. He ordered that the man be hanged. As he went out, his limbs began to weep. The tongue said, didn't I tell you? I'm the one in charge. And they all agreed and said, yes. The man said to the hangman, bring me back to the king. Perhaps I could save him. He was brought to the king. He asked the king, why did you command that I be hanged? The king said to him, you brought me a dog's milk. The man said, what do you care? It's going to cure you. Also, he said, can't we call a lioness a kelbe? said, that's what they call it in my hometown. They took a sample of the milk. They tested it. They found it to be the milk of the lioness. The king had it. The king was cured. And the limbs said to the tongue, we kneel before you. And so it's written by Shlomo HaMelech as we started with, Mavid v'chaim b'yad lashon. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Rashi explains, those who love, love the the love it. What does he what does he mean? Rabbeinu Bachya goes on and explains. He who loves his tongue and accustoms it to speaking words of Torah partakes of its reward in this world. Rabbeinu Bachia goes on, he says, If a man employs the power of speech to speak words of Torah, to admonish people, to live according to Torah, and to thereby help Jewish society to acquire spiritual merits for himself, then his reward is with him and his works are a beacon shining before him. It means he's going to be recognized for his true worth. Rabbeinu Bachia continues, on the other hand, if he uses the power of speech to engage in slander, lashon hara, and character assassination, rechilah, and the like, his punishment will be served up to him, and he will have to consume it 
to his being more than stayed with. He's, he continues quoting the verse, death and life are the power of the tongue, exactly as we've been saying, those who love it will eat its fruit. He explains what the author, Shlomo HaMelech, is saying is that seeing the tongue controls death and life. If someone loves the tongue, is anxious to keep talking at all times, he should endeavor to choose subjects which are liable to enhance his life. Speak words of wisdom, moral and ethical words. If he does so, he will get to eat as a reward the fruit of the power of speech. He says, only in that case will people who are fond of talking increase their merit in proportion to their frequent use of the tongue. He says, in the reverse case, someone who loves to talk but uses his tongue indiscriminately so that he engages in gossiping and worse of all, what's going to happen? His punishment is going to, he's going to eat the fruit of his punishment. We consider all of this, it's so important to be circumspect in the use of one's tongue. Thus is the words of Rabbeinu Bachi. And I think that's how we close because it's really an interesting lesson that this aspect of the tongue, this aspect of speech drives its way through the entire portion. It's the speech which saves the siach, which saves, which is the merit for Noah. It's the idea of teva, the word, which is what which would allows Noah to survive through the flood. It's learning to say instead of impute, instead of instead of tamet to say asher lo teora, which is not we, we're using a way to say it nicely. We're not using a way to say things badly. And it's this idea of the Dora Flada who try to use the words, who try to use the language in a detrimental way, who try to do something to destroy rather than to build. We have these four levels of life. Medaber is the highest level. The gift of speech is a gift given only to us. And this gift is one we have to utilize for the good. We have so many things available to us today. We have the Chafetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, Michael Rothschild. He's done an amazing, amazing job in getting people to take the time to learn about it. We have to go back to the story with the guys with the feather. We have to realize we can say something bad and it's gone around the world in minutes. But we also have to take the lesson from that guy. When the rabbi pointed out what he did wrong, when he saw the feathers flying everywhere, when he saw it was impossible for him to fix, he went and he studied the words. He studied the words of the Chafetz Chaim. He studied the laws of, of speech. And what happens? Instead of using his speech for detriment, he used his speech to teach people and to help people become aware of the same things that he had become aware of. Bezrat Hashem, we should all do this. We should all, we should all do this. We should be blessed with a, a wonderful month. We should take Cheshvan, take the bitter from Cheshvan. I think what's the bitterness? Maybe the bitterness is that there's no holidays, meaning not even good, not even bad. Because even in the bad, we get close to Hashem. We're so close to Hashem sometimes in Av when we, when, we're, when we go through the three weeks. We're so close to Hashem in that time. We have these days where we come learn Torah together. What we have to do is take Cheshvan. And Cheshvan is the anniversary of the flood. That's when the flood started. That's when the flood ended. That's when Noah comes out of the ark. We have to come out of our ark. We have to use the teva, the word, for the proper way. And Hashem will bless us with a year of health and happiness, peace and prosperity. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Thank you for joining us.